Welcome to another edition of Nebraska Gems. On this episode, Tom Stevens has an opportunity to speak with this guy. Some prayers right now from Falls City to Shadron, Bankelman to South Sioux. 24-23 Nebraska in the fourth. The serve goes to Maddie. Good pass. Set left. Batenhorst, the freshman. Doug. Overdig. Joust at the net. Controlled by the Huskers. Joust again. And it's tipped to Kayleigh. She keeps it alive. Back row roll shot. Kubik. Set point chance for the Big Reds. Set in the middle. Redkey off hands. And Kayleigh saves it. And then Batenhorst gets a rip. And it's in. It's in. Set point, Big Red. I can't believe what I just saw. Kaylay saved it. And then it was brought back in by Manning. And Allie Batenhorst takes a big rip on a set from behind and hits the Wisconsin headline. We're going to five. We are going to five. Never doubt Husker Hart. Come back for the fifth. The title match is right here. Match point chance number two for the Huskers. Serena Gray. This isn't in. It's over. Sails it across to Kubik. Good pass. Three options. Outside, Big Norse roll shot. Dug by Gray. Outside set, Pittsburgh. Lund. Good Nebraska wins. Grandkids. It's the Big Man. Going to the national championship match. Bring on the bed. Go celebrate my guest today has been the voice of Nebraska volleyball for 29 years. When you think of some of the greatest play-by-play guys in Nebraska sports broadcasting history, you might think of Lyle Bremser, Kent Pavelka, Jim Rose, Dick Perry, Don Gill, Tim Morland, Adrian Fiala. But all those guys called football or hoops. This guy has made his mark with Nebraska volleyball. Let's welcome in the voice of Nebraska volleyball, my good friend for the last 30 years, John Bailey. Tommy, how are you? Great to see you. Flattered to be here. Well, um, you're definitely, you were high up on our list when we thought of Nebraska Gems. Uh, you're the voice of Nebraska Volleyball. You have been for 30 years now. Mm. Um, but you also did women's hoops. You were the voice of the Lincoln Salt Dogs. You were one of the original voices for the Lincoln Stars. You've done sports talk. You've done news top talk. Husker baseball. Husker baseball. You're comfortable behind the microphone, to say the least. Where are you most comfortable? Probably baseball and volleyball. And then talk radio when I have a partner. Why baseball? Baseball is like doing a talk show with stuff happening. You see, when you do a talk show, you got to invent stuff. Right. you got to thin air. Otherwise, it's just nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's a chore. Now, you have a partner, it's much less of a chore. It's much more of a conversation. Back to baseball, you've got all this time to fill this huge canvas... And there's stuff happening. Right. People are moving. And then and there's so much nuance to the game. There's so much that does not meet the eye that the announcer can bring to life. Right. Uh, and so you have to pick and choose and tell stories. And and I, I love the the rope and the time and the discretion you're allowed in that sport, which is most sports, basketball, right. certainly volleyball, which I love, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, hockey, you're on the short leash because the game continues. You have to stay to on top of it. Absolutely. Uh, Vince Scully, maybe the best ever to yeah. call baseball, just passed at the age of 94. A very pleasant good evening to each of you, wherever you may be. Is he a role model for you? That's a little strong. I was in L.A. for two and a half years, and I listened to him a fair amount. I, I'm amazed that so many announcers 
seem to have this attachment to them, emotional attachment to them. Yeah, did I cry when I heard some of the audio clips after his passing? I did. Uh, mm -hmm. Do I acknowledge he's such a unique talent? Absolutely. Is he probably the greatest ever? Absolutely. His conversational style, his, his, his bright tone, the tone of his voice his matters well, a lot. What you were talking about, the ability to weave a story into the broadcast. Absolutely. Sometimes you forget the, the game is going on, and then you know it's a 2-2 two -two count, and he's back to the game. Absolutely. He, and and his, his, his uh, use of metaphor and imagery. But, you know, I think what's under, everyone said everything, so I don't need to repeat anything. But one thing I haven't heard in all of the eulogies is that his tone was very bright. And now, of course, everyone has this deep, hockey right. voice, right? Yeah. You know, the deep hockey voice. And his is completely different. And and it's this cheery, avuncular, yeah. wonderful, nice guy voice. I think that's part of the magic and everything else that everyone said. Right. But uh, I, I listened to a little bit of John Miller because I, I was a big follower of the Red Sox. Here's the bottom line. I don't listen to a ton of guys. So... Uh, that Why was, is well, that? Because you don't want to fall into a exactly. trap of mimicking them? Exactly. And when I do listen, I often hear things I don't like. For example, if you um, if if a uh, if you got a fly swatter uh, and there's a fly going by, do you swing on the fly or do you swing at the fly? You swing at the fly. Swing at the fly. But when in baseball, what does everyone say? Swung on and it's like swung on. So I, just, <laughs> so I don't want. To, I don't get it. You know, it's like I literally. You get caught up in, in the lingo. You're you like. Language. You're, yeah, you're into language, and it bothers you if people use it incorrectly. This is a linguistic you know, yeah. task here, and all we have, at least on radio, is the sound. And right. so I'm a literalist, uh, and, and also I just think it, you can develop into lazy right. conformity, and I've, that's never been my style, which is what has lent, yeah. it, it's lent itself well to volleyball, where there are very few out there, at least when I started. Right. So I used to say when people would tell me, oh, you do a nice job, I'd say, how would you know? <laughs> There's, nobody, <laughs> There's nobody else who does all, it. Well, what they, all they know is they're entertained, and that's your yeah. gift, is yeah. to entertain and make people laugh. Uh, even though you prep, uh, you take the sport very seriously and knew nothing about volleyball when you started, right? Knew how to spell it, the word. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you get the gig for Husker Volleyball? Uh, Jim Rose, Bill Byrne, Terry Pettit, kind of in that order. Uh, no, Bill Byrne first. Bill Byrne came to KLN Radio where I was employed and said, look, you're already doing football men's and women's basketball and baseball we want everything under one tent right. we want you to do the other sport volleyball which had been down the street and uh, Jim said fine but if so we're going to take this rookie guy named Baylor and he's going to do the games and uh, Bill's like fine I knew he knew me uh, and uh, then he was the athletic director and then he went to Terry Pettit you yeah. know legendary head coach and Terry's like who what no and so right. it took some cajoling yeah. and finally Terry ultimately agreed and started this wonderful magic carpet ride for 28 years. Wow. Um, when you think of, you mentioned Terry Pettit, and Terry Pettit, obviously a Hall of Famer, and then comes another Hall of Famer, John Cook, that, you know, it was the old, you know, Tom Osborne following, or Bob Devaney. That rarely happens. Yes. That, uh, a coach uh, becomes a Hall of Famer after a Hall of Famer. Usually you get a Gene Bartow, who lasted one year after John Wood and went to Alabama Birmingham. Right. I mean, it's, it, usually it's one and done after a legend. So the question is always, is it tougher being the legend? Is it tougher being the, 
than Terry Pettit, or is it tougher being John Cook who has to maintain it? Is it tougher being Bob Devaney who built it, or Tom Osborne who has to maintain it? Boy, that's splitting hairs, but I would say the pioneer is tougher. Because again, you're creating out of nothing. Yeah. I mean, Bob Devaney arrived here and Bill Jennings had been a big losing yeah. coach, and uh, Biff Jones right. had been here for four years and been my, uh, his kids were my uncle's best friends growing up, so I heard a lot about Major Biff Jones. But there's no the, pressure there's, there. There was no pressure, and there was, there, and there was, there was this uh, fermenting mm -hmm. uh, interest and, and desire for right. winning, but there had not been no history, and then Devaney right. out of nowhere. You know, this cowboy right. from Wyoming, right? singing cowboy from Wyoming, and he just captures everyone with his charisma and then winning. And uh, it was just, without Bob Devaney, would there have been an opportunity to be, to, to have a Tom Osborne? Unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, you know, Terry Pettit, I, mean, I grew up in this town, I never heard of anyone playing volleyball, forget about going to a game. And suddenly he creates this, you know, uh, uh, dynasty from next to nothing. That mm -hmm. that I would just say. I, I think the forebearer. I think the the um, <clears throat> progenitor is probably the with, without which nothing else is possible. Now again, most successors to legends are Gene Bartow like. Yeah. And John Cook and Tom Osborne are fabulous um, exceptions to that. Tom Osborne was nothing like Bob Devaney. Is John Cook anything like Terry Pettit? Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, I totally agree with your premise about the football coaches. I think Cook and, and um, Pettit are actually uh, somewhat similar in their demeanor and their attention to detail, their work ethic. I mean, neither of them is a Devaney. Right. You know, no one's like a Devaney. Yeah. I wasn't around very much, but uh, you couldn't anyway. be Devaney today, could you? I mean, good question. Uh, I think so. Like you could be a Bobby Bowden today because there's so many more platforms. I think there's an increasing craving for entertainers, actually. So now you'd have to be a winner. You couldn't just yeah. be this this mm -hmm. personality. But oh yeah, everything gets amplified because of technology. Now, oh my, I think Devaney could be even bigger and could grow even faster. But uh, you know, Cook and, and Pettit certainly have their dis differences. Their styles are different in some degree. But the focus, the seriousness. The earnest approach, the attention to detail, the indefatigable, tireless effort, those are shared. And they were also very close friends. Yeah, well, and both probably reinvented themselves over time. You have to keep growing and getting better no matter what you're doing, right? Cook has changed dramatically as a coach and as a person. Everybody says that. It's been printed a uh, hundred times. How have you noticed that he's changed? I've seen it firsthand. I remember he was really down about 2011, 2012, and unbeknownst to me then, he had already started his effort to change. But I remember jogging with him in, at Texas A&M before a match, and you could tell he was hurting, and he wasn't particularly happy. And, and I was trying to cheer him up, actually, a little bit, uh, which is a role I, mm. I don't think I've ever had to do prior or since, frankly. And, and it, it, it struck me like, oh boy, I mean, this things are not going well. The team, the pro program wasn't doing so well on the court, and I'm sure that ate at him. I know it ate at him. But he personally had, as he said publicly, he had some physical issues then and just wondered if the game had passed him by a little bit because it had been a while since that 2008 magical run. And he did the really hard work of changing, and that meant getting uh, – uh, uh, a psychologist that helps with the team and all the team members, a whole new system yeah. like of, of 
of support for him and especially for the program. And it's worked. I mean, it got to the point, I'll give you just an example, in 2015, the uh, title year, uh, he by then long since had had a um, psycholo team psychologist that worked with all the lead the players and, and the coaching staff. And uh, coach had this idea that he needed to stand up during matches to show the players how much he cared and was involved and, and focused. And so uh, the psychologist asked Kelly Hunter, the setter, is that your reaction? She said, no. It actually makes us more tense and anxious because you're standing kind of lurking right next to us. And John heard that, took the advice, and now he sits during games. That's just an example of, of the trust that had been built, and that was the product of years of effort that probably started around 2010, 2011. He took a big risk. He and Tom Osborne took a big risk leaving, as you remember, uh, the Coliseum was a great home court advantage. We had 4,000 people on top of you. It was a fantastic environment. It was a great home court advantage. And he and Tom said, well, no, we're going to move to the Devaney Center and make it 8,000. It seemed like a big risk. First, can you fill that? Uh, can you fill that arena, which they've had no problem doing, but at the time we didn't know. Sure. Um, he's an innovator. I mean, that's another way that he has changed. That was a big risk. Did you think it was? Absolutely. Absolutely. That that uh, was a home court advantage that gave him and whoever his successors were would be, become uh, that huge advantage. But there was a ceiling on what the program could become in that building. It only sat 4,100. That's mm -hmm. a small number. And suddenly we're doubling it to 8,200, okay? And much more capacious. It's, it, it's impossible, frankly, at the Devaney, in my opinion, to create the noise, the crescendo, that we once you would enjoy on a regular basis at the Coliseum. It was a big risk, but he's always done that. He's, and he's often put his sport first. Sure, he cares about Nebraska volleyball yeah. uh, very much at the top of that ladder, but boy, the sport itself is right behind. He's always doing things like scheduling opponents and and traveling to China and speaking with the press and pushing the conference that not everyone welcomes and embraces, but really ultimately push all the other leaders of the sport to take risks and be their best and grow this pie because there's no reason that volleyball remains nationally, you know, distant second behind women's basketball and television coverage and right. understanding and, and fan following uh, when in fact it's the most popular youth sport among girls. So uh, there's a disconnect there, and John Cook is part of the solution and always has been. Nebraska has become the Duke of college volleyball when it comes to recruiting. Um, Mike Krzyzewski, it's always been said about you know, Mike, Mike Krzyzewski, that he would select. He didn't have to recruit. John Cook recently said uh, a lot of coaches do 50 Zoom calls with the recruits. They've narrowed it down to maybe five or six. They literally have taken over recruiting in college volleyball. How has that happened? It's a change. We would miss out on Haley Eckerman, for example, the National Player of the Year out of Cedar Rapids. So you'd think we would get her, right? We finished second. A lot of players. There were two starters on the Stanford four-year 2016 through 2019 teams. Two starters from the Kansas City area, Jenna Gray, the setter, and the right side. We finished second. There was a middle for Texas. We finished second. That's all 10 years ago with Ackerman, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Things have changed. Part of it was the Devaney Center. 
Part of it was the Big Ten Network. Part of it was going to the Big Ten. Part of it was Danny Busboom. Part of it is Jalen Rays. You got two of the greatest assistant coach recruiters and just connectors you'll find. It's their personalities really connect with seventh, eighth, ninth grade girls and, and their parents. And then you've got a great closer who's getting better and better at closing with recruits and, and John Cook. So it's really a, a, a confluence of, of um, uh, attributes that have, have come together. But it's really amazing now that Nebraska and Stanford pretty much are at the top and the others, like Texas's recruiting class this year, these are a lot mm-hmm. of second choices. These are great players. Right. Nebraska and Stanford can't take them all, but they're finishing second. Penn State's lost their head coach, Russ Rose. They've taken a step back. Now other teams have emerged. You can't rest on your laurels, but this is this is a new phenomenon that Nebraska keeps stockpiling top five picks. Well, you're seeing some coaches that embrace the new way of recruiting the NIL. Uh, I think Cook has embraced it. Uh, Russ Rhodes and maybe said, eh, "I've had enough um, of where college volleyball is going. College football has certainly gone that way. College basketball, name, image, and likeness." Lexi Sun, of course, got the, the big deal with Borsheim's last year. Kayla Caffey maybe saw there was more money to be made somewhere else. Um, is this, is name, image, and likeness, is the money involved in college sports, volleyball, basketball, football, is it good for the sport? It, it's reality, so I don't know if it's good or bad. I think uh, it may turn off some fans at least in the major sports, where players allegedly, we don't really know, all this yeah. stuff is kind of, kind of right. private, are allegedly are getting you know, six-figure deals annually. So I, that might turn off some fans. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe the, the, the helmets you know, supersede everything else. But uh, in volleyball, everything follows. It's a more innocent sport. you know. And uh, so what compensation, in quotes, there is for, for players, for endorsing brands, in volleyball is a fraction of what it probably is elsewhere because just the money in the game is different. But one would perceive that Nebraska would be better positioned because of the fan base. You have a Husker athlete endorsing on to college, my business, for example. That carries real weight Whereas if, in volleyball. If, if you have a Georgia Tech volleyball player in Atlanta endorsing something, I mean, that's probably not going to carry as much. But I want to go back, Tom, to your question about what has caused... Nebraska's ascendancy in recruiting. And actually, I think it pinpoints to one moment. And uh, all these other general trends I talked about are valid, but I should have mentioned one moment that I'm not sure other people agree with, but it's my theory. The 2015 National Championship in Omaha, and the image of Nebraska prior to that, remember they had gone 2009 through 2014, no Final Fours, was sure you can go have a great experience, be a local legend, go play pro, but it's not a lot of fun. It's pretty tense, a lot of stress, and oh, when you do lose, I mean, everyone's crestfallen. Wow, why not just go to UCLA and chill? When nobody really knows you, hang out at the beach, play a little beach volleyball, have a lot of fun, Uh, go to uh, Minnesota where the stakes are a lot lower, you don't get recognized in grocery stores. Then in 2015, the Huskers make the Final Four in Omaha, place is packed, the ESPN cameras are in the locker room, and there's uh, uh, the team dancing around and having fun before the match, after the match. After the match, coach is dancing with the team, and it changed the whole narrative 
among the families in the sport. You know, the families with the elite athletes. They're kind of this subculture. They kind of communicate you know, telepathically with each other or via who knows what kind of platforms. And they all had heard the narrative. But the pictures destroyed that narrative. Oh my gosh, these players are having a blast. Michaela Fecky's having a blast. Look at these fans. I mean, you can have it all. And then they'd see the Devaney Center during the regular season. You can actually have it all at Nebraska. And remember, if the, the whole you can play pro, that's as valid here as anywhere. Uh, and it's even more so now with, you know, we should have had four ex-Huskers on the Olympic team, but Michaela Fecky retired. There would have been four ex-Huskers on the Olympic team. Texas had one. Penn State had two. And there was three Huskers that should have been four. Uh, so... Uh, it that 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 last sort of anchor that was holding back Nebraska's recruiting that oh it's serious and you're not gonna have a lot of fun it's stressful is it really worth it totally evaporated with those images in the 2015 national championship doesn't that go back to Cook and how he's evolved and he was a huge part of that exactly true and he's a huge part of that. the old John Cook may not have gone in the locker room doused with you know the you know whatever beverages they were throwing at him and dancing around with the team and um, it was. It, it, I didn't see it. I was on the radio, but I saw the videos later. I'm like, wow, that's going to fracture this whole this group of naysayers who say, well, I'm not sure about Nebraska. I, I think men's sports could take something from women's sports, in particular volleyball and basketball. The women sometimes, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just a perception, it does seem like they have more fun. Maybe the stakes are, you know, from a perception standpoint, higher uh, on the men's side, so they have less fun. Maybe the pressures, I don't know. But is, can guys take something from watching women play basketball, volleyball, whatever sport? Well, yeah, volleyball, uh, softball, boy, they seem to have a lot of fun. Basketball, the women's basketball players have a lot of fun, like down, you know, body bumping and high fiving. Uh, I, I, I they think support each right. other yeah, as they, well. They, these are very team-oriented sports, and volleyball is one where you have to come together after every rally and tap hands. And I'm just trying to think about men's volleyball. They are a little more serious, but they do the all coming together between rallies and hand slapping. Look, uh, the head coach of North Carolina uh, women's soccer used to coach the men, and he says men have to play well to feel good, and women have to feel good to play well. And there's this, this connectivity that's really often required for a female team sport to have good chemistry and, and perform well collectively. Whereas in men's game, I mean, if LeBron's playing well and, and one of his teammates is playing well, you can probably win. You don't necessarily have to all get along. Uh, so I think there is something to it, this team-first approach that seems to be more prevalent in women's sports. sports. One of your gifts, we talked about it at the top, is making people laugh. Um, can't serve fruit cup, blocking like <laughs> cholesterol. You've come up with a number of different sayings that are originals. And um, did you know that you were gonna do that? I mean, when you started volleyball, did it, did it happen naturally? It Was really it happened naturally. I, 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 uh, I just thought this is entertainment. Everyone's so doggone serious. And when I listen to games or watch games, everyone's so serious. And trust me, those, those people are uh, and those professionals are incredibly successful and, and skilled at what they do. But I just thought, wow, can't we just also have a little more fun? I mean, how often do we get to laugh? How often do we get to smile? And I'm sure a lot of my attempts fall flat. Most of them, uh, vast majority of them are spontaneous. 
but it's funnier sometimes, yeah, even if it does fall flat, because you're laughing about it, so it makes me laugh. But usually when you get that side of sports, it comes from a guy like John Madden, who's a color guy. Yeah. Not many play-by-play -play guys will color outside the box and try to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even think that you're trying sometimes. It just It's just who you are, yeah. right? I wanted to, I did make a conscious decision about 94 to, uh, long time ago to make my on-air persona as similar as possible to who I really am and I got that while I was down at the 94 Big 8 baseball tournament in Oklahoma City and my partner Gary Sharp and I were on this show called the Al Eshbach show and Al Eshbach was this irreverent funny guy like hey what about the Huskers why aren't they playing so well are they really going to have a chance to beat Oklahoma State I don't really know I'm just like what this is amazing like you can really do this and so I just thought like I'm not like that I don't speak like that but I was really impressed by the the, the idea that of course he's going to be himself and he's just this funny irreverent guy and so from then on I thought alright I'm just going to try to do what I do in real life on the air but I've heard you say this on other podcasts Maybe you wouldn't be so willing to take the risk that you have, and they are a little bit of a risk. I mean, this is on the Husker Sports Network, and you yeah. don't know if it's going to hit mm -hmm. or miss. If you hadn't succeeded in business outside of the broadcast arena, your success outside of the broadcast arena has allowed you to take risks inside that yeah, arena, right? I think that's fair. When I, I tell young broadcasters, if at all possible, develop an alternative revenue stream so you don't need the broadcasting revenue uh, to subsist and that allows you to be less conventional to take more risk I think there's a lot of truth to that that I uh, I love what I do uh, in broadcasting I'll be extremely sad the day it ends and it, most broadcasters don't leave of their own accord you got change in ownership change in rights you know and, and they get they get pushed aside and I will be very sad when that that happens um, but um, I don't need the revenue, no. You have a bachelor's degree from Stanford in international relations. How'd that lead you into sports? <laughs> my what, philosophy, which came first? My philosophy on college is, you, and in life, is you do what you love, and things will think good things will happen. Like The ends don't justify the means. The means is the destination, and so, oh, you love acting, try to be an actor. Oh, uh, you uh, don't know much about finance and uh, you're pretty much clueless about finance and uh, you need to learn about it. Okay, then go get a job in banking. Oh, now you don't like banking, so go try acting and go try sport. You know, I love sports. I've always kind of announced games when I was a kid playing Little League. I always be announcing the game. People always would come. I used to go be an announcer. So I said, I'm going to go try being a sportscaster. So uh, I studied international relations at, in college because at the time, and still to this day, I'm fascinated by politics. And uh, people then would ask me, so you want to go into the Foreign Service? And the one thing at the time I pretty much knew I did not want to do is go into the Foreign Service. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very ironic I chose uh, international relations. If I had to do it again, I probably would have chosen history and or English uh, for a variety of reasons. But at the time, international relations was kind of a cool major. At, and. Uh, it seemed to capture a lot of the things I was interested in, but no, I had no plans to go into international diplomacy. You mentioned acting. You, you gave you shot a shot at it. You've had a lot of success in broadcasting. Is there any part of you that would give up your success in broadcasting to have had more success as an actor? <laughs> uh, first of all, I kind of argue with what you're trying to say. I, I'm successful 
in a pretty small pond. I mean, the basketball volleyball is wonderful. I love it, but I'm no national, right? You know, guy. Uh, so there, there are a lot of guys in Lincoln, Omaha, are much more successful in a conventional sense of broadcasting. But you're just as good as many of those guys. A lot of it just has to do with hey, you're calling the Dodgers. Um, yep. You've had more success than other volleyball announcers would probably True. because you're calling the Huskers, and it's a rabid fan base, right? True, and some of it's a product of my choices. You know, I, I decided to raise my kids in a manner that I would always be around, and then now I've got uh, some grandchildren I'm, I'm helping with. So part of it's choices and the way life works out. But uh, anyway, you're kind to say, now, would I like to be Tom Cruise? Heck yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> that would be a ton of fun. But I literally gave acting a shot. Instead of going to law school or business school, I said, i got to give this a shot. So it's out of my system, and I know. And did I give it a sufficient shot? Probably not. Yeah. Would I have had a modicum of success in acting? I think I would have. But when I think about the actual life that actors lead, the uncertainties, all the big names uh, who uh, you know, suddenly no longer are the flavor of the month, I think that would, that would be tough for me. I, I need you know, sort of sustained purpose and relationships. And there is just so many uncertainties for the vast majority of actors. But would I love to have been the top 0.2%? Heck yeah. Were you any good at I mean, did you Did you feel like, yeah, I'm pretty I, good? I think I would have, I think I was pretty natural at it, yeah. yeah. I uh, but on top of all the other stuff, you, you're an innovator. Uh, you started your own business, Baylor Test Prep, which has evolved into on to college. Of course, uh, tens of thousands of students have taken your course to improve their ACT scores. Where did that idea come from? It was very practical. I was in L.A. and I'd gone through my savings. And I was trying to be an actor, and it was clearly not paying the bills. So I started by getting a job as a waiter, which in L.A. is a big accomplishment. And here's how I got the job. I was at a five-star restaurant, and I had worked at Pizzeria Uno before, and I'd had a pizza joint. I had very little experience. I got a five-star waiting five-star restaurant waiting job in L.A. where there are armies of actors trying sure. to get decent wait jobs. The manager was a University of Nebraska graduate, and I played that card, and I boom, I went right to the front of the line, and that lasted about a month before I spilled a tray of <laughs> champagne glasses on a CBS executive at lunch, and I got a call that night saying we've got to fire you. <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> so that didn't work out, and then I would I try to be do a, be a telemarketer. This is the natural evolution of side hustles for mm. actor wannabes in LA. So then I was a telemarketer. I was pretty good at that. Hated it. I worked for this company that I had a very... You seem like a guy that wouldn't be able to follow the script on a telemarketing. Very true. Very true. I, I met one of my very closest friends at this company. Uh, I'll just say it. The company's name is Ames Media, and we used to call it Lames Media. And so that just gives you an example of how I, it was soul-crushing to me. I'm sure it's a, a very noble pursuit, and a, and a family that runs the business has done extremely well. But it was just not for me. And then I started tutoring, and very quickly I decided, hey, why don't I do test preparation? Because that's where the opportunity was. And so, that, again, it was really a product of necessity. And so, you know, the mother of invention. Hold on, what's the phrase? Necessity is the mother of invention, something yeah. like that. And, and I, I did that as a, on the side to finance my uh, acting and then broadcasting pursuits after I moved to Nebraska. And then I flipped it after about 10 years, and I did on to college full-time, and then broadcasting the Husker Volleyball has been my avocation for about 18 years. You've authored several books. Uh, one of those, the critically acclaimed Reaching Higher, One Simple Strategy to Transform America's Schools K-12. through 
What's that strategy? <laughs> Thank you, Tom, for uh, looking into that. I published that in 2015. I really think what afflicts K-12 education is student disengagement. And how do you confront it? I think primarily you need a narrative that daily reminds students why education matters so much. And so in this book, I lay out this narrative that I would hope that school staff, faculty, administrators would embrace, and it would be up there as an echo chamber on banners and posters throughout the building and then shared by staff with the students because uh, it's clear to me, and more so every year, that the greatest adversary we have in education is student disengagement. It's only worsened because of COVID and because of cell phones. We have got to confront that. We can't execute education like we used to in my day when it was just implied that geometry mattered and it was just inferred that English grammar mattered. Kids don't grow up that way for the most part anymore. Some kids do, but very, very few, increasingly small percentage. They need a, a reason why to try every day. And we need that narrative echoing throughout every building. More important, math or reading? <laughs> oh, they're both doggone important. Uh, but, you know, one, one way people can distinguish themselves is if they just speak well. And it's very easy to learn. I mean, I, I teach 19 grammar rules, and I teach it in about 60 minutes, one hour. And you've got it for life for the most part. And math is, it takes a little more time, and, and sometimes you have to have a little bit of a gift for it. But I, I'd say expressing yourself well in the written, in writing, and also in speaking is something that can be pretty quickly accomplished. You run a business, though, that focuses on increasing test scores in a country that's going farther and farther away from uh, you know, putting importance on test scores. Yeah. It's more about what your GPA is, maybe, but uh, the test score doesn't necessarily matter. Well, how, how difficult is that for you? Well, we are conducting a unprecedented national experiment right now with this test optional movement. And it's one thing for, you know, Kansas State or, or um, Northwest Missouri State uh, or University of Nebraska Kearney to say, you know what, you can attend our college without submitting a test score. And there are lots of economic forces that make that probably a, a prudent choice for those colleges. It's just, you know what, you got a high school transcript with a 3.0 GPA or higher, a 2.0 GPA or higher, we're going to let you in and we're going to really um, reinforce our staffs and we're going to have all these success coaches and help you succeed after you're here. That's, I don't begrudge that. But when we start giving merit-based scholarships, when we start giving like regent scholarships or full tuition scholarships for kids based on merely a high school transcript and that GPA, I think we're, we're really relaxing standards, putting a lot more pressure on teachers to, to inflate grades, and uh, I think we're going to regret it. Uh, and we're already seeing signs of that where, you know, MIT and University of Georgia, University of Florida, like college after college system is, is coming out and saying, you know what, we've recognized now that that objective score is yeah. not everything, but in, in addition to a GPA really lets us know a lot more about yeah. that applicant. I remember 
my toughest teacher was also one of my favorite teachers looking back. I mean, you, Killer Keller, we called her. Uh, there was no such thing as an A. I mean, you got your English paper back and there were red marks all over the paper and it was often at the top of the page, do it again. Um, we're, we're running farther away from that. Don't you think kids want to be challenged? Absolutely. And I don't really blame the teachers. Uh, the teachers are so overwhelmed right now. They've been through a really tough stretch. But yeah, I think we're all better when standards are high. And I think it was an easy instinct for a long time to express what I call COVID compassion. Mm -hmm. I think we got to get beyond that. We, we, when, we, when we cancel the final or we say, oh, you, you know, you got a little sneeze, you don't have to make up that test. And we got to get beyond that because we're seeing now it's so much tougher than ever. Now that we've spent two years, not our fault, you know, the kind of the, you know, the pandemic forced it relaxing standards now getting kids back getting people it's a human condition to gravitate towards ease yeah. and what i tell young people is you want to do that in the nursing home home be my guest i don't do a lot of speaking or working with nursing home inhabitants but you're like 15 16 17 18 come on i mean we got to dig in and battle because the workforce will hold you accountable you know there's all this talk about you know workforce you know look if if you as an employee you're doing a really good job you're not going to get fired you're going to be get, getting promotions and what does that mean punctual uh, respectful inquisitive hardworking. and what does that all come down to self-discipline we have to reinvigorate all our institutions especially education with self-discipline so when i speak with with staffs i i urge them Hold these kids accountable. Give them bad grades. None of this is easy. It's yeah. really easy to talk about. But yeah, we remember. That's one thing I tell them, yeah. teachers. Do you remember your easy teachers? No. Yeah. Do you remember the ones that were tough on you and forced you to be better? Heck yeah. And so I, I think the kids would benefit. And the parents have to help. So many yeah. parents yeah. want to cushion their kids. It's not healthy for them. When you snow plow and get involved, I'm no, when... when my, I always tell my kids, I'll take a hard-earned C over an easy A. You mentioned your kids. You have three kids. You have three grandkids. You have a full house. It's almost like the Brady Bunch. Um, <laughs> what's it like to be the child of John Baylor? Oh, it's not easy. It's not easy. How because so? I have high expectations in my children, and, and they've sometimes asked me to back off a little bit. And uh, I, like... Uh, my oldest, I was not a fan of her dating boys, and I'm, I'm not sure that was... Well, that, you're um, not alone on yeah, that one. But I, and I would say things like, look, what benefit is there? Now's the time to really focus on what you're doing, and you're a rocket ship. Of course, their guys are going to want to hang on. You, you get your ship where you want it mm -hmm. to go before you start. And, and, and then I would, you know, I, I, we basically didn't have television. Yeah. Uh, and so... It, it wasn't easy, uh, but I, I had some pretty basic rules. I said, Baylor's never quit, we always work hard. And with my oldest, she played tennis and she played number one at Lincoln High. And it was tough because she, she was playing really powerful wow. players a lot. And there was one time when I thought she stopped trying. And I went over to the side of the court and I just said, Baylor's don't quit, you need to play hard. And that's the only time I haven't been so yeah. proud of her. So it's, it's not always easy, but that's the way I was raised. And I'm grateful for it. And I also told him, look, sports are, are helpful and nice, and I love sports, but they're not required in this house. Right. Playing piano is non-negotiable. Right. If you 
want to quit piano, I will cut back on my work and I will come and I will sit next to you. And now they're all beautiful piano players and they're all grateful. Yeah. So I, I, I'm flawed, I make a lot of mistakes, but a constant is high expectations and in the moment it's tough. I think after the fact, for the most part, where did that not, come from? Your dad or your my more dad? Your... I remember my dad once said, "Well, it's you know, it's great that your sister's going to Michigan Law School, but it's too bad she couldn't get into Harvard." I mean, so <laughs> you know, I, it's a painful memory. Yeah. Uh, it and that, but that's the way we were raised. And so, yeah. with your parents, you take the good and you leave the bad. So I think I'm a yeah. moderated version of my dad. I saw that up close because I knew your brother Charles before I knew you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I remember, you know, is before going to Irving Junior High School, he would get up at 4 a.m. and he'd have like three paper routes. Yes. Did you have that as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. I woke up at 3.30 in the morning, every morning. My dad never drove me. didn't matter with the weather. I jumped on my bike, went down to 24th and Van Dorn, picked up the papers. And I had about 36 houses on the route. And I'd be done within 30 minutes and back in bed. So when I went to school, and I'm, I'm 10 years old, right? so I would go into <laughs> third and fourth grade, right? I had already been up at three in the morning and then back in bed about 4.15 in the morning and yeah. then awakened a second time to actually attend yeah. school. I, and my dad forced us to pay taxes, so we had to keep track of the income and then we paid tax. We had to fill out the tax form every year. I remember sitting down right. at the dining room table, filling out the taxes with them. And Did you ever great dislike your dad for that? Never. Never? Never. I was, it was tough, it was exacting, uh, but it instilled a work ethic and self-discipline that has distinguished me ever since. It's not altogether healthy. I've got kind of pretty high standards for myself yeah. that are impossible to live up to, but uh, no, it, I, I was very grateful for that. Um, that you, you understand how unusual that is. I mean, a 10-year-old kid doing a paper route, getting up at 3.30 in the morning. I had one, but yeah. um, I think I quit it after a while. <laughs> uh, that, we, we didn't have a working television. We never watched TV. So yeah, I, I mean, we it was all snowy when we turned it on. I mean, ten eleven was sort of you could sort of <laughs> glimpse it through the blizzard, but right. That's so we were together. We'd have dinner every night. We helped with dinner. We always did the dishes every night. We had a paper route in the morning. Um, but that ended at some point because you you uh, your mom and dad got divorced yes. and you left and went to Massachusetts. Correct. Was it? Yeah, in sixth grade. So I just spent. The end of second grade, all of third, fourth, and fifth in Lincoln, and never dreamed I'd move back. How hard was that? When my parents were divorced, it was yeah. brutal. I mean, I was four and a half. I have no recollection of them together. I think it was tougher on my older brother, Charles. He was like six, so he yeah. had a little more cognizance of what was happening. I was four and a half when it happened, so I have no memory. But yeah, I, I, th I remember saying in my 20s, Tom, that you know, their divorce actually was a good thing. It like forced me to be much more self-sufficient, because when I was in sixth grade living right. with my mom, I mean, it was rugged, and she was she was struggling. So I thought that was a good thing. And in retrospect, there there's a lot of wreckage, uh, emotional wreckage from a divorce. Yeah, there are very few that get away unscathed. So in, yeah. in retrospect, I, it would have been you know. But, I mean, you point easier. to it, and it's almost like a Tony Robbins like thing where his mom, and this is not you, but his parents were both alcoholics, and he credits them uh, himself, his own personality for you know, what he went through because he had to parent them in, in, in a way. I mean, sometimes we think, oh, man, we need a perfect life mm. uh, to be what we need to be. And you didn't have that as a child. I mean, you had obviously two loving parents. Yes. But 
maybe had they not gotten divorced, you wouldn't have been pushed to grow uh, yes, like you did. It's all I knew. Uh, you, you don't know anything else. But yeah, when I was in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was pretty much a parent in the house making decisions on what we we're going to spend, what we we're going to eat, what the menu was, while at the same time trying to play a little Chiefs and little league baseball and, and trading baseball cards and, and I had to save money to buy a Huffy uh, you know, a motocross bike. And, right. and so I was kind of uh, in, in playing two roles and it, it shaped me and you don't really know anything different. But yeah, I, I think um, sometimes divorce is, is necessary. And um, bottom line is it, if there are no children involved, in my yeah. opinion, it's, it's not a, it's, it's yeah. unfortunate, but it's not a horrible thing. But if there are children involved, it's going to be consequential for them. COVID has obviously changed a lot. You talk about how it's you know, changed you know, sports, for sure. You had to, to go into a studio and call games via teleprompter, or at least the television with Lauren Cook. Um, how difficult was that, calling games off a TV <clears throat> not monitor? Much, not much at all. I mean, uh, you get all sorts of views, and you just... You just have to be sure to call the coaches ahead of time so you really have the background because you don't have the benefit of, of um, going to see them before the game and, and learning more. Uh, but I, I think uh, I, I, I'm amazed at how fans can't tell the difference, and I think that's about right. It's, I, did, I couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah you get good at it. Uh, this is our rapid-fire section. Uh, as we wind down the interview with uh, Nebraska gem John Baylor, one of my favorite people ever, known him for 30 years. Uh, what's your favorite month? Do you have a favorite month? Um, maybe September. I love the fall. Everything's fresh. Volleyball time. It's volleyball time, football time. The, everything's starting out. I mean... Every kid's a 4.0. Uh, you know, every 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 team's got a shot at the national championship. It just it it's a it's such a wonderful. The air is wonderful and invigorating, and I, I do love the fall. Favorite food? I used to love duck, but I just don't eat it very often, and so. I just went to check days. We had duck. Nice. With, uh, duck Danny and Wilbur. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love Thai food. I can't tell you much more than that because I hit the menu and I'm like, okay. Can you cook? Uh, not well. Yeah. That's one of my many regrets. I'm, I'm working on Susan's that. Susan's always... Uh, She's an amazing cook. Yeah. Amazing cook. What's your favorite word? <sighs> Indefatigable is one of them, which means tireless. Um, ostentatious is another one, which means uh, showy, conspicuous consumption. But I just... I, I like the word obsequious when somebody is excessively fawning or trying to please or obsequious and I just think that there's really no substitute for that word a word to me is enriched when there's really no true synonym so uh, who is your hero hmm. well I think we have public persona and private people who are our heroes and Larry Bird is my public you know, one of mine heroes. Too. Yeah, we're and, both big Boston Celtics yeah. fans. And the more we learn about our childhood heroes, typically the the, the the less their light shines. The more I learn about Larry Bird, the more amazing he is to me. How so? 
uh, oh, because there's so many stories about him that are, are untold or unknown because he's so humble. You want me to give you one? I'll give you one. I'd, I'd love it. Uh, well, I was going to an education conference in Louisville, and I realized that French Lake, Indiana is only about a two-hour drive away. So I go up to French Lake. It's a rainy, raw day. I think it was the spring, cold. And I go to Larry's, not bar, but sports bar, grill or something in bar. And I walk in there and I say, does Larry ever show up? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, tell me more about all this memorabilia and you know what's Larry's involvement? And they're like, well, he's not really involved. And I said, why don't you talk to this guy? So I talked to this guy and he's like, I'm on the school board. I know the whole story. What do you want to know? And he, here's the story. Um, this guy, I'll make up the name, Bill Jenkins, okay, wanted to start a bar. And he goes to Larry. They grew up together. And he goes, Larry, or they grew up in the same town. They didn't know each other. Well, Larry, everyone when they think of French Lick thinks of you. I want to name the bar after you, mm-hmm. and I'll give you a piece of the action. I just want your memorabilia, all that. And Larry's like, I'm not interested. He's like, oh, you know, 25%, what do you need? I mean, he, just, he goes, no, I'm, I'm just not interested. And then Larry says, his, the story goes, what's your name again? Jenkins, Bill Jenkins. Was your dad the gas guy in, company, in town when I was a kid? He's like, yeah, my dad worked for the utility company. Your dad used to keep our gas on and the heat on in the winter when my mom couldn't pay the bill. You can use my name and use my memorabilia. Wow. And Bill Jenkins, not his real name, says, oh my gosh, wow, uh, what percentage do you need? He goes, no, no, I don't want a percentage. You can use my memorabilia and you can use my name. And then Bill allegedly, soon thereafter, goes to Larry's house and I think in Bloomington or Indianapolis and goes to the door and the maid is there, the home and the house cleaner's there, and she says, oh yeah, Larry said you were coming for the memorabilia. Yeah. And he says, yeah, and she says, oh, it's, it's in the garage. In the garage? Yeah, it's, it's above the garage, let's go upstairs. So he goes in the garage, goes upstairs, and in the attic of the garage, flicks on the light, and all his trophies are like tipped over, cobwebs on them, and everything. He doesn't care. Doesn't care. Yeah. Wasn't about that. Yeah. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? Oh, yeah. I and mean, you don't I, hear that story. Like, you have to go and do the research. There was a little bit of an arrogant side to Bird as well. I mean, who's finishing third or second? You know, that, if, that type of thing. It's the truth. It ain't bragging. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a Bird fan as well, and I, I love those stories. Personal uh, hero? I have some teachers that are my heroes. Uh, um, Jim Beaton, still a close friend of mine, and uh, John Tulp. These are high school teachers who just brought learning to life for me and made me a lifelong learner. What has been your favorite age so far? My sister says the 50s the best age because you know you're kind of you know yourself so right now, well. Yeah. You know yourself well, your kids are fairly self-sufficient, your health, you still have your you health. You can kind of look back. Yeah. And, and observe. And you choose wisely. You're 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 less frivolous with your choices and time. What do you want to accomplish in the next 10 years of your life? I'll just say, I was pretty happy in high school, so I want to say that that was probably my happiest stage, but um, the 50s are a great time, too. Uh, What do I want to accomplish in my life? I mean, you've obviously, you know, a lot of people might be just retiring at your point. I mean, (laughs) Baylor, Tess Brown, on to college is doing really well. You can kind of, you know, let your people handle that. Uh, your broadcasting career, you can continue to do volleyball as long as you want. You don't really need to accomplish anything. Uh, I, I would be very unhappy. And I want to say the last name's Baylor. It's not Buffett. So I, I, I've still got to work. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, 
I always said when I was young, I, I, don't, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to have fun and make a difference. And I want people at the end of my life to say, John Baylor helped. And I didn't know specifically what it meant, but to me now it's probably in the area of education and entertainment perhaps with sportscasting. But yeah, I, that'll never die. I, I want to have fun and make a difference. And I want to make sure that other people's lives are improved somehow. Tony Robbins says that people are happy when they're making progress. Not so much about it's not so much about making you know the big money or you know the business being launched. It's about the progress, yeah. the process of it. Would you agree with that? I think there's some truth to that. My theory is life's hap, life and happiness are about two things: about purpose and relationships. And so you got to have purpose. You know, if you're, there's not something you're working towards, progress you're seeking then you're kind of void of, of purpose. And if, and if you don't have relationships, uh, you're feeling isolated and lonely. So it's really uh, the two, and we oft, they're often related. You know, you find purpose in, in your relationships, and you often find relationships from your purpose. But someone who's just working on their purpose and is kind of lonely, that's a sad place to be late at night. And someone who just has relationships but nothing really purposeful to work towards at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday that kind of ends when the you know the other the people have to go do their thing so uh, it's really an intersection of the two to me and so I'd gauge big choices in my life according to how they benefit me and my purpose and relationship well you have your relationship with Susan I know her very well awesome wife uh, yes. awesome lady yes um, but you also have Three children and three grandchildren, and at some point they've been living in the same house. Yeah, we're the Baylorate. What is the cha- What are the challenges of that? Well, it was unexpected. My uh, stepdaughter passed away in late 2020, and she had three children, has three children, and we've taken them on, and that was unexpected. And so you just you, you take the you know life's challenges as they arrive. And it's been a gift in many, many ways uh, because we get a second chance of parenting and a second chance of doing it better. And, and I've softened a little bit and, and I'm a little more compassionate. That was not a strength of mine when I was younger, but now I think I've got a ways to go. Give but an I'm much example better. of that. How, well, how have you changed in that area? Well, I've, my grandson, Quincy, I, you know, I'm, with him, I'm not quite as... Uh, demanding that he plays piano if he truly doesn't want to. He's getting there. He's kind of coming around, but it's more... Do you play piano? I'm trying pretty hard, but that's one of my regrets. So your kids have to play the piano, but you did. Because no one did for me what I'm trying to do for them. That's fair. You take from your parents the good and you leave the bad. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm a little more uh, compassionate and... And I sit down, I play games with them much more than I used to. We play Roar on the Floor a lot, right. which is the game. We tackle each other on the floor. And we go on walks. And I'm going to be there for them in every way I, I can, emotionally, physically. But they don't have to be straight A's. They don't have to be king of the hill. Right. They just, from what I learned from, uh, one thing I've learned from life is that these accomplishments and quotes that you know, society has deemed worthy don't necessarily speak to fulfillment and happiness. Right. And so uh, when I asked Quincy what, to want to, what he wants to be, he wants to be a crime fighter. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you'd be amazing in law enforcement. It'd be fabulous. So, awesome. so it, it, 
I let them define uh, who they are and what they want um, much more than than I was allowed or, or maybe even my kids were allowed. And there'll never be a, oh, too bad you didn't get into right. Harvard comment, right. even right. entering my brain, forget about exiting my right. mouth. By the way, I wish my parents would have made me play the piano. My sisters had to, but I didn't. Uh, kind of, I wish they would have made me do that. Any hidden talents that you have that people don't know about? I mean, we know you can act. Pretty good um, actor. I was a pretty good athlete, and I and I still try to be that. I'll, uh, Played so, baseball at Stanford uh, for a day. I would try it out, and uh, uh, that's another story that you don't want to get into. <laughs> but I could have played it a lot of places. But uh, so I guess people probably don't realize that when I was younger I was a pretty good talent no I never played college um, sports and I try to be a pretty good tennis player and and occasionally golfer which is not going well as we speak <laughs> and then uh, we played talent. a lot of golf together it, you can hit it a mile he's a really good athlete <laughs> ladies and gentlemen uh, you can't cook you mentioned that Susan yep. does all the cooking how do you want to be remembered I think I think back to hidden time I mean I think I'm a pretty good writer I think writing comes pretty easily to me like I, I can I've, I've done, I did some comedy writing when I was trying to be an actor, and, and uh, if I ever were to focus on it, if I enjoyed writing more, that would be something I could do something with, because I can, I can write pretty easily uh, and, uh, and decently. How do, how do be, you want to be remembered? He made a difference, and uh, he was less selfish as he aged. Fast questions here, real quick. Work or play? Work. Money or happiness? Happiness, but there's this great quote from Georgia O'Keeffe, the artist, about how happiness is overrated. There's not much, she doesn't have much interest in happiness because it's so momentary and fleeting, whereas interests are sustaining. She says, we always talk about happiness, but we should be talking about interest because if you have strong interests, that'll fulfill you and that'll sustain you. And I think there's so much truth to that. I think happiness is so often experienced retrospectively. We talk so nostalgically about how happy we were at this stage yeah. and this stage, but at the time, did we say to ourselves, oh my yeah. God, this is awesome, I'm so happy. Sometimes, yeah. but not as often. Whereas if you have an right. interest you pursue, like you love fixing right. cars, that's more important. I, th I, th I take a lot of, I give a lot of weight to that quote. There's a story about Tom Osborne just wins his first national title. He's the offensive coordinator at Nebraska. Uh, beaten LSU in the Orange Bowl. And Nancy Osborne tells the story of he's in his room moping. Like, everybody's downstairs partying, you know, in the hotel uh, in Miami. And he's like, is this all there is? Mm. And he remembers the process being more important. Yeah. So sometimes the happiness is great, yeah. but it's the process. Bleeding. So true. And the, uh, it's the interest you have in something that carries you. And people without interests, I just, I feel for. And when I don't have a, a strong interest, I get frustrated. Or when I have multiple interests, which you can't. Mm -hmm. You can't have multiple interests and do them particularly well. I remember I spoke to Jenny Kropp after the 2000 title in Richmond. There was a little party after the fact in the ho back at the hotel. And I was standing with her and everyone was celebrating. And the balloons were everywhere. And I said... How does it feel? And she said, uh, actually, it's a little anticlimactic. Yeah. 
I'll never forget that. She was the great middle blocker, went on to play professionally on the beach. And she's moved back to Grand Island. I haven't seen her in years, but she, sometimes people say things or do things that just sear themselves in your memory. And that was such a raw, honest activity. I mean, yeah. we, we judge by the outcomes of the, right. the moment. But it's the process, it's the yeah. practices, the friendships. Sure. That's, they're what's real. Yeah. We all know that. Absolutely. I know the answer to this after peeking in your, your condo down there. But cats mm-hmm. or dogs? Cats because my family likes cats. But I think I really warmed up to dogs. See, here's my theory on dogs. Dogs to me are like an avocation. They're like a hobby. It's like, hey, do you play violin? No, but I have a dog. I mean, like you got, it's, <laughs> it's either or because they're so involved. Yeah. However... The unconditional love. Remember I told you about relationships? Like yeah. 50% of happiness. Sure. That dogs provide. Invaluable. I mean, there were, what, three to four million yeah. COVID dogs that were taken in by families? Sure. And it's because of the lack that of, of affection we were receiving and interaction we had. And dogs filled it. Cats don't care. Cats don't care. Yeah, they don't care if you're cats, there or not. Cats. So sometimes I'm jealous of cats. Like, you know, no ambition. <laughs> what a way to go you're never disappointed um, morning or evening I used to be an evening guy when I was work when I was uh, in college and high school I mean I'd start working at 10 at night uh, but increasingly I, I get going in the morning because I when I do the things for myself I don't want my family to miss out to, to miss me or to um, to, to uh, feel slighted so I'll get up at like 6 and I can get anything done by 8 8 30 yeah. I, I can and they'll never notice because mm-hmm. they're, they're just getting up so I've become increasingly a morning person what do people not know about John Baylor that would surprise them that um, I was a stand up comic for four months in New York how did that go because uh, you're funny you're naturally I, funny I, I think it was I'm, and I'm always writing so I keep you know in my notes app in my phone I'm always adding funny right. stuff I think I think that's funny and I've always thought I need to put together like a timeless like twenty minute act. And you've emceed stuff, and you yeah. got to be funny there. You got I love stand up comedy when it's done well. I just when I was a stand up comic, I just I who's watched. your favorite comedian? <sighs> Who makes you laugh? Mitch, Mitch Hedberg, the late great Mitch Hedberg, H E D B E R G. Oh, I know who he is. Oh God, he's so funny. Yeah, he's brilliant, and everyone thinks he's brilliant. This is not right, soul. but. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, that new special he did on Netflix, yeah. wow. Comedians in Cars is one of my favorite shows. I've seen that like once or twice. But I mean, that show he did for Netflix, that's prof- that's really well. He is a, a consummate pro. That's so tough what he did. And it's so quick. It's really well done. Came out during COVID. I need to watch it again. Um, Bill Burr is very uh, politically incorrect, but he's so, got some brilliant so stuff. His latest is very funny and, and very controversial. Yeah, and if, if I were a female, uh, and some <laughs> of the stuff I don't approve of, but let's just say he is fascinating with the stuff that comes out of his mouth. John Baylor, longtime friend, great broadcaster, good man. <laughs> you are too, Tommy. Great to see you. <laughs> <laughs>